All right. Good morning, listeners. Uh, welcome to this week's news from the drug war front. Uh, my name is Jeff, and my co-presenter is Marion. Good morning. Good morning, Jeffrey, and good morning, you people out there. It's cold and it's wet and it's miserable. And I, isn't it nice when I give you the weather report and tell you to stay in bed and just listen to the radio show? <laughs> it's pretty bleak, isn't it? <laughs> it's dreadful. Came yeah. in dripping wet. But anyway, we're, we're here. here. And hopefully got some uh, We've stories got some and great discussion stories, and music. I reckon. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, welcome to today's edition of News from the Drug War Front, brought to you by Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy, and The Connection, which is Canberra's peer-based drug and alcohol service for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients. The show's been uh, going to air on 2XX for over 15 years now, so we'd like to, um, again, thank 2XX, People Powered Radio, Indeed. for their support of our program and other, uh, you know, ones that cover issues not covered by the mainstream media. Um now, we obviously uh, want to promote the broad array of services provided by Karma and also report on stories relevant to illicit drug users um, uh, from Australia and also around the world. And most importantly, um, try and promote people to think about uh, whether prohibition is worth continuing on or we need some drug law reform. Um, I don't think you have to think about that stand. real hard, Jeffrey. No. I think that's pretty obvious. But, yeah, we want to encourage debate and get people thinking hard about it, yeah? Well, it's the only way things are going to change. It is. Isn't it? And, it's look, it's changing in many places around the world, So, and we've got some stories about that today too. We so, do. No, there yeah. are some, some positive signs, aren't there, Maz? There are. Yep. So you going on with? Uh, yeah, look, Karma and the Connection just provide a range, wide range of services. Oh. We won't go into them. Um, Not but, all of them. You don't need to, really. With the advocacy, peer treatment support, opioid maintenance treatment, just support with that, hepatitis C treatment, uh, education, art therapy, support groups, rehab services, dealing with stigma and discrimination, which is really big with illicit drug users, something that you do of, often need advocacy for, mentoring and referrals. If we can't help you, we'll let you, send you to someone who can. Above all, Karma and the Connection are harm reduction services. So Karma and the Connection are located in the Belconnen Churches Centre, Shop 17, Level 1, 54 Benjamin Way. The drop-in hours are 10am to 4pm Monday to Friday. Contact can be made on 6253 3643 or emailing karma at info at karma.org.au. There's a walk-in clinic with a doctor and nurse tomorrow, so every Wednesday from 10am to 2pm in partnership with Direction. You don't need an appointment for that. The Connections Harm Reduction Program, Muragadi, is for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients. And the Connections staff offer the same services as Karma, but in a culturally appropriate way that is tailored specifically for First Nations people, clients. Indeed. Um, do you want to the, mention the next Naloxone yeah, program? I do. The next... Uh, uh, opioid, look, I decided to downstairs, this is OORR, the Opioid Overdose Recognition and Response with Naloxone Workshop is scheduled for Tuesday, September the 6th at the Early Morning Centre. So to book a place or to get more information, call DAMO at Karma on 
3643. Yeah, look, Dave's um, taken some leave uh, in September, but I think after he gets back, it might be good to get him in to give listeners an update on the success of the Karma. Which, and it has been extremely successful, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and been picked up and run with all around the country, really. I mean, it, it's something to be very proud of. I think Karma's done a great job with it. Good on you, Dave. And it's funny when things are, turn out to be such a success yeah. that um, the the organisation that did all the hard yards to get it started sort of gets overlooked, you that's know, right. and others take the credit. But that's be that as it may, it saved people's lives and that's what really that's matters. That's what matters, yep. yeah. Okay, this news from the Drug War Front um, uh, program um, features articles that come from other sources, including the mainstream media. So the contents of this broadcast slash podcast do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Karma and the Connection. Karma does not condone but uh, nor condemn drug use and we do not promote illegal activity. However, we recognise that drug use happens and will continue to happen regardless of laws and United Nations conventions. As such, Karma focuses on harm reduction messages, drug treatment support, services, advocacy and community development. We seek to reduce the harms associated with drug use and its criminalisation through the provision of programs that foster community development and the delivery of person-centred holistic health care. Karma advocates for equity of health service delivery for all people. Thought I might go to our first song, Maz. Um, Good idea. Uh, I actually had to listen to this last night, so um, must be starting to feel better now. I'm listening to some of my <laughs> old favourites. This is uh, Carla Santana and Europa, Earth. Earth's cry, heaven's smile. Ah. Carlos Santana.
hour. That could only be Carlos Santana, Isn't couldn't it? it? Yeah, and that's so pleasant to listen to. So I hope everybody had their first coffee of the day listening to Carlos and lying in bed just relaxing and listening to news from the drug war front because that was beautiful, Jeffrey. Oh, cheers, Matt. And that was recorded in 1975. Yeah. Um, Europa, Earth's Cry, Heaven's Smile. Yep. So, yeah, hope so, and it, it says that the lyrics were by Carlos. I didn't hear any lyrics. No, there was no vocals at all. <laughs> Not at all. He just sang with his guitar. <laughs> he did, yeah. All right. He was good at that. Um, I've got to thank Mitch, uh, my colleague, for this uh, alerting me to this story, which is oh, it's absolutely horrendous. disgraceful. Yep. It's from The Guardian uh, Australia. Yesterday, New South Wales police strip searched more than 100 children as young as 13 in a two year period. And this is an exclusive. More than 4,400 strip searches were carried out in total between July 2020 and May 2022. The New South Wales Police have been accused of misunderstanding their own strip search powers after data showed officers continued to use the controversial practice on thousands of people, including children as young as 13, during the height of COVID. Data reveals police in New South Wales carried out more than 4,400 strip searches between July 2020 and May 2022, which includes a Delta wave lockdown that lasted more than 100 days. Mm. Released to the Redfern Legal Centre under Freedom of Information Laws, um, the figures show more than 100 children were amongst those searched, including a 13-year-old. It comes despite promises by police to overhaul their policies around the use of strip search powers after the release of a damning report by the law enforcement watchdog in, in 2021. The report, which recommended Parliament considers changes to legislation to clarify police powers after finding that many common practices, including forcing people to squat or move their genitals, are not legal. Good. It has never received a formal response from the New South Wales State Government. What a surprise, yeah. Dreadful. But experts are concerned that the data and a response given to The Guardian by the New South Wales Police for this story suggest the controversial power is being misused. Absolutely. New South Wales Police are only permitted to conduct, conduct field strip searches if the urgency and the seriousness of the situation requires it. In the case of minors, a parent or guardian must be present unless the search must be done immediately for the safety of the person or to prevent evidence being destroyed. And I don't understand how they could justify it, justify that as being a, uh, um, a serious situation at a, at a um, just out on the street or, or at a, you know, at a concert. It's just... It doesn't make sense. It's got more holes than a colander. And a 13-year-old. I mean, how, oh. it's just so... The whole thing is just degrading, humiliating, and it's irresponsible. And what sort of trauma is that leaving... Oh. And no, and no respect for the boys in blue, yep, and girls in blue. Well, raise another generation of people. That hate the cops. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and I'm, don't trust them. You look at it from every angle and it's, it's wrong. just wrong. Yep. yep. But in response to questions from The Guardian, New South Wales Police said that strip searches were one of, quote, various proactive strategies proactive. used in its ongoing commitment to reducing crime and the fear of crime in the community. Duh. What about fear of police and, yeah, well, you know. Stepping over their powers. Going over the boundaries, yeah. A spokesperson claimed powers, quote, such as searches and move-on directions have proven 
uh, to significantly drive down crime, including knife possession and armed robbery, despite data consistently showing the vast majority of strip searches are done on the basis of suspected drug possession. Absolutely. No, I mean, why would you have to move your general's genitals to expose a knife? You can't do that. You can't hide a knife it's really underneath sickening. your genitals. It is. The data obtained, this article goes on, the data obtained by the um, Redfern Legal Centre also showed nothing illegal was found in about 60% of the searches conducted during the period. While the spokesperson said an officer must have quote, must have the state of mind required, whatever that means, end quote, under the legis legislating governing search powers. Dr Vicky Sentis, a lecturer at the University of New South Wales, said the response showed officers, quote, misunderstood the legal purpose of the strip searches. I agree. She goes on, strip searches should never be used as a proactive crime prevention to deter future offending, said Centres, who in 2019 co-authored a report which found that the use of drug dogs was helping to fuel massive increases in strip searches. It goes on, strip searches are meant to be a last resort only to be used in serious and urgent circumstances like an emergency. It's not surprising, looking at the volume of strip searches during the pandemic, that the New South Wales Police see strip searches as a proactive policing tool. That's the end of the quote. The use of strip search powers in New South Wales has been intensely scrutinised by legal groups, oversight bodies and academics in recent years. The new figures come as a class action lawsuit against the state was launched last month alleging the unlawful use of strip searches at music festivals. Good on them. I think we reported on that yep, when it, we have that story came out. Sam Lee, the, uh, the Redfern Legal Centre's uh, police power solicitor, said while the overall number of searches was lower than previous years, it was still higher than expected given the data... The, was collected during a period which covered COVID lockdowns and when music festivals were largely in hiatus. Quote, I was astounded by the high number of searches with very few people on the street, Lee said. It's a clear indication that the policy changes are not putting any brakes on this practice. I was astounded by the high number of searches with very few people on the street. He said, Lee said, it's a clear indication that the policy changes are not putting any brakes on the practice and I just repeated myself, well done, the whole two lines. The data showed the uh, Indigenous Australians, particularly children, continue to be disproportionately targeted by police. Overall, Indigenous Australians make up 10% of those subject to the searches, despite comprising only 3.4% of the state's population. So let's add some racism to Absolutely. the, uh, to the Chuck mix. Absolutely. Uh, racism and ageism. How yeah. old do you think would be the oldest person that they searched? It would be a visual thing and a subjective thing, yeah. according to the copper. Yeah. yeah? yeah. Ageist. Racist, and you know, how are you dressed? Do you look like a hippie? Do you look like a junkie? Yeah. 
Indigenous people make up 18% of all children searched, but in some areas they were dramatically overrepresented. In Dubbo, in the state central west, more than 50% of people strip searched were Indigenous or First Nations. Well, that's shameful. Um, that's disgraceful. Yep. And the police should be ashamed of themselves. And I hope a lot of this... Um, the material that we're bringing out about New South Wales will actually urge people to get into um, class actions and to change the government next time around because really this government has done some atrocious things and been responsible some for some very dodgy pra- practices. Well, they've ignored the recommendations of the ICE inquiry. Of, of um, the pill testing. Pill testing. They've yep. allowed strip searches to continue. Um, it's well, a pretty... It's such a, the whole thing is that it's such a subjective thing, you know, the last resort and preventing, you know... It just means that when you see people on the street, depending upon how you like the look of them, as an individual you are entitled, they think they are entitled to go and strip search them. So if they're getting people off the street, does that mean that therefore break and enters are going up? You know, are people sort of hiding from the police? Yeah, what's the return for the resources invested? Absolutely. Well, yeah, very little, I very suspect. Little. Yeah. Very little. No, I, I think that's an appalling story. And thanks to Mitch for um, yeah, alerting for me to it. it. It's a it's a real shocker. Thanks, Mitch. Um, we've been reporting, of course, on the drug checking service that is now, I think, open for a month. In fact, the first data set is due out imminently, which will be very interesting. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, Did I, we hear whether Mitch might be able to come in and talk about it? Um I actually haven't teed anything up, but I'm sure he'd be happy to. Um, okay, well, when, maybe when the they media. get the first data out, he yes. can come and maybe talk about it. That would be great. Yep. Well, we mentioned the Queenslander examining the pill I testing. I think we should, yep. Okay, the risks and benefits of a Queensland pill testing trial have been worked through after the state's mental health commissioner noted that it could help save lives. Health Minister Yvette de Arth said several issues must be considered before any trial goes ahead and no decision had been made. She's quoted saying, is it in the best interest of individuals and festival goers and will it lead to less deaths, less injuries and less drug use? She said in response to a question from Greens MP Michael Berkman in Parliament, we'll give this proper consideration. It will be based on evidence. Well, that's a good start. And we will ensure we're looking not just nationally but internationally as to the best practice in relation to this. I think those three questions be yes, yes and yes, Mm. don't you think? I do. Ms Darth's comments followed Queensland Mental Health Commissioner Ivan Forkic telling... Forkic, maybe. uh, Yeah. Telling parliamentary estimates the issue has been on the agenda. Quote, there is evidence both from other jurisdictions in Australia and internationally which would suggest having drug-checking facilities, particularly temporary ones or even fixed sites, can contribute to saving lives, he told the July 29 hearing. Australia's first testing site, a six-month pilot program to allow people to test drugs and pills free of charge has opened in Canberra. The ACT government says it will help weed out dangerous substances and provide an opportunity for harm minimisation and counselling to encourage a reduction in drug use and certainly a reduction in harm. I've added that myself, but certainly a reduction in harm. So that's good to hear that uh, Queensland are picking up on it. No, look... um you know, we talk about evidence-based policy. This is evidence that's irrefutable. That's it's, right. You know, as, as 
sophisticated as is possible. Um, you know what worries me, Jeffrey, is that we come on every week, and I'm, I've been to many places in Australia, and talk to people, particularly about HIV and about drug use and harm reduction, and it seems that Canberra is seen as as um, an unrepresentative place. Mm. That the fact that we have these. Um, pilot programs that turn out to be successful is something that we ought to be doing. You know, it's like we're expected to be doing it because yeah, nobody else can do it, mm. but we can do it because we've got people who give us permission to do it. And actually, I agree to some extent, we do have access to influence in Canberra. Mm. The last 10 years has been proof um positive that we didn't, but nonetheless, um, with the different government in and with the kind of government that we have at the ACT, we do have access to politicians. Um, and to, I've talked about yeah. this before, that, you know, if you ring up at lunchtime, you're just as likely to get the minister mm. because the receptionist is out at lunch. It's amazing how close we have to... Uh, how much access we have to influence on policy making, and we can get a yes or no answer to from our politicians. That's been really clear to me, and I, that's what I like about living in Canberra. Mm. It's a really handy place if you want to have some influence on policy or on legal stuff. This is and a place overall, to be. It's quite progressive. Yeah. Okay, my play a quick song. This is uh, Mamas and the Papas and California Dreaming. Not a good idea.
All right, it's two minutes to 11, and welcome back to this week's news from the drug war front, brought to you by Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy. And of course, it was Mamas and Papas, California Dreaming. Okay, coming up after the 11 o'clock news, um, we're going to have some uh, more stories, of course, and one of the ones that I think is particularly um, concerning and actually um, don't often say glad to hear of a seizure, but in this case, um, the seizure of 11 kilograms of fentanyl by the Australian Border Force um, has basically uh, headed off the possibility of... um, the impact of overdose deaths that has swept through North America with fentanyl, a very powerful, very cheap synthetic opiate being added to not just um, other opiates, but also to other drugs that aren't opiates. So people who are opiate naive and have had no experience with using um, heroin or other opiates have been um, fatally overdosed uh, as a result of their drugs being contaminated or cut with fentanyl. So 11 kilograms um, had a a serious possibility of having a a deadly effect um, in Australia. So the seizure is um, welcome news. And uh, again, um, as long as we have a black market and no safe supply and quality controls, um, sooner or later, uh, a big load of fentanyl is going to escape through and um, impact the uh, quality and uh, the danger of um, drugs that people are buying on the black market. Anyway, we'll have that after the news, which is coming up right now. All right, welcome back to News from the Drug War Front. It's four minutes after 11, and you're with Jeff and Marion in Studio One at 2XX. That's people right, Radio. We're very glad to be in Studio One, too, because it's warm, and I'm telling you, it's really cold outside. It's chilly outside, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the, go on with some national news now, and this was probably, people might have seen this on uh, ABC News, but it's an interesting article. The uh, AFP and the ABF, or the Border Force and the Federal Police, discover record fentanyl seizures in machinery sent from Canada to Melbourne. This is by Melissa Brown, of course, from the ABC News, August the 22nd. Federal authorities have intercepted a record amount of the potentially deadly opioid fentanyl hidden inside machinery sent to Melbourne. The AFP and the Border Force today announced the seizure of 11 kilograms of fentanyl and 30 kilograms of methamphetamine found inside an industrial wooden lathe, machinery used for wood or metalworking, that arrived at the Port of Melbourne from Canada in December last year. So they've been sitting on this for a long time, Geoffrey. The AFP said it was the equivalent of more than 5 million potentially lethal doses of fentanyl and $27 million worth of methamphetamine. Australia has only ever recorded illicit fentanyl importations of less than 30 grams with the first case in 2017. That was probably from the uh, dark web, I suspect. A quote, so so to have a detection of 11 kilograms pure is quite frankly extraordinary the ABF commander James Watson said look I guess it's just been a matter of time Marion hasn't it? It has been yeah they had to keep on looking for markets you know they probably killed everybody they could in the US and Canada and they 
So they had to find other markets, and here's one right here. And coming from Canada too. Well, it's, wow. it's, it's typical of a black market when the motivation is profit. Like it's, That's right. it's powerful. It's synthetic. Yep. It can be made in a lab. And you don't have to, you know, source opium poppies or, you know, there's none of that That's right. requirement. Yeah. Um, it's massively profitable. And it can be hidden in anything. I mean, Easy can, to smuggle. Yep. Yep. But, you know, devastating impact. Uh, 11 kilograms is a huge, huge amount, amount. Though, isn't it? No. I, had, I saw it on the TV last night, really a large amount. That is a large amount. Mm. Okay, it uh, goes on to say fentanyl is a fast-acting opioid that is highly addictive and acts on the same receptors in the body as heroin. The drug is primarily used for medical purposes, like I think they've got patches for cancer treatment. They and, do, um, yeah. And you know, particularly for, I mean... Terminal. Hepatitis C... With the cancer from that, yeah, they use fentanyl for that, but very low doses. The drug is primarily used for medical purposes, but the federal police say it can be mixed with heroin in overseas illicit drug market markets, often with fatal consequences. Well, the really dangerous um, impact is when it's mixed with non-opiate drugs, yes. well, and people, people are not expecting it. Yeah. Well, if you're totally opiate naive, and next thing you're injecting something with something cut with fentanyl, incredibly strong. I mean, you only even when you use heroin in a minor amount, um, when you're not used to it, it and it ugh, has, can have dire effects. For fentanyl, is just so many more times uh, devastating. Well, yeah? it's it's another classic argument for a safe supply. Absolutely, um, it's it's just risking people's lives. Investigations uh, to confirm the presence of the drugs and extract them from the machinery took place in a carefully planned operation in February, with paramedics on hand throughout the two-week process due to the possible danger of any exposure to officers. Australian Federal Police Acting Commander Anthony Hall praised his officers who became suspicious about the shipment. He's quoted saying, people who use illicit, illicit drugs can never be certain of what they are ingesting. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> and this seizure highlights the potentially lethal game of Russian roulette that they play. Well, what causes that? Indeed, prohibition. prohibition. The AFP and Australian Border Force, the Department of Home Affairs, have established a joint operation to identify those responsible for importing the fentanyl. Now, good luck with that one. More to come. Indeed, yeah. I would say. But I, this is from December last year they did this bus, Jeffrey. It's and we're taken, you know, finding out about it now. Seven months later, eight months later. Not yeah. good enough, really. Well, let's hope. Touch wood that we can hold the you know the line on uh, fentanyl flooding into Australia because it's just going to lead to carnage. Oh, yeah, no, yes, and and we've really got to look much more seriously at safe um, provision Absolutely. of opioids that that people want, not the ones they just want to provide, but the ones that people actually require, the ones that they're prepared to use. Then they wouldn't be driven to buy stuff on the street that they are not sure of what's in, what's in it. You know, that's the black market is all about being unsure. Exactly. As if we haven't been saying this forever, but nonetheless. Good time to plug the drug checking site again. Indeed. You know, it's not just pill testing, it's, it's drug, drug checking. Check, checking. So um, keep and that in mind, people. We actually have an article here too from Ireland, which is um, about uh, a landmark Move drug testing is to be piloted at the electric picnic. Now, it took me a while to figure it out, but it's a um, it is a, maybe Jeffrey, you might put that on the website because it's a, a reasonable length story. But yep. it's actually interesting because it means that the idea of drug checking is spreading. is spreading and gaining traction in other places. Ireland sounds like a very sensible place 
to be picking this up and running with it. It's not going to happen in England anytime soon. It no. might happen in Scotland, yep. but certainly uh, Ireland picked it up and they're going to go with it and it sounds like a good idea, And even if they only do it in one location. But they have made suggestions in the article that it might be either fixed site or a, uh, a pop-up testing unit and a, a disposal bin. I think the sense of that idea is spreading, yes. as you say, which is which is really uh, good. Yeah, but they want the data, Jeff. They want the data. It's the only way to find out, isn't it, is to do a, a provide a risk free environment for people to have their drugs checked. Yeah. To find out actually exactly what's, in, what's them in it and what's going to stop. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it'll kill them or not. Look, um, I thought we might do this story. It's about um, fetal alcohol uh, syndrome. Um, and there's an awareness day, which I wasn't aware of, but it's a piece from a regional newspaper, The Shepherd and News, by Caitlin Grant, and it's entitled That Support is Missing, International Fetal Alcohol Syndrome Awareness Day Sends a Message. The National Organisation for Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders Australia Chair Cheryl Debman has met hundreds of people in her role over the past four years. She considers each meeting a chance to share some positivity and to acknowledge all of the hardships that people go through, either living with or caring for someone with the disorder. Mrs Deadman is a passionate advocate, but also one with empathy. She has been in their shoes. Four years ago, Mrs Deadman was yelling into the void, trying to find an answer for her adopted son. He was given an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis, but even with management, his symptoms were worsening. After going through their own process of attempting to find a fecal alcohol syndrome diagnosis and being supported by copious amounts of research, Mrs. Deadman was still being knocked back due to the intricate criteria of diagnoses. She came to her wit's end. Quote, it got so extreme I googled help for FASD and I came up across NOFASD. So I made a call and from that moment on I felt like I'd landed on our planet where we belong, she said. <laughs> So no FF, no FASD is a not-for-profit organisation that works to support families living with the disorder. Mrs Deadman was able to find her son's diagnosis with the organisation's support. But more than just the diagnosis, her family, uh, her, he finally had access, she finally had access to interventions and management tactics. Mrs Deadman and her family aren't alone in their journey. FA, fetal alcohol syndrome disorder is a lifelong brain-based disorder caused by prenatal alcohol exposure. It is the leading cause of birth defects and the developmental and learning disability worldwide. It can present as poor memory, hyperactive behaviour, speech and language delays and attention deficit. It can manifest differently, making it difficult to recognise and harder to, di to diagnose. It's considered a, quote, invisible disability when children and adults have no visible signs. The condition often isn't picked up or will be classed as something different. This often escalates behavioural problems due to ineffective strategies. September the 9th marks International Fetal Alcohol Spectrums Disorder well, uh, Awareness Day, being the ninth day of the month, ninth month of the year, ninth day of the ninth month of the year, it signifies the nine months of pregnancy. 
Uh, quote, effects can occur at any time during a pregnancy. There are so many myths surrounding FASD, Mrs Dedman said. The day is about trying to raise awareness which will lead to education, which will hopefully then transfer into support because what people living with FASD and those caring for them need because sadly that support is missing. Mrs Dedman said International FASD Awareness Day highlighted the difficulties of living with the disorder but also shone a light on how appropriate interventions can lead to positive outcomes. To observe the day, NOFASD encourages people to wear red shoes or red shoe items in support of not only those living with the disorders but carers and families as well. Quote, support for these warriors who pour their hearts and souls into providing the best for their loved ones is generally a huge void in their lives, she said. Yeah, look, I thought that was interesting um, given how widespread alcohol use is in our culture. And how often girls find out that they're pregnant after a night on the town when they've actually been using alcohol. So, you know, that retrospective, what have I done yeah. stuff. Well, imagine the guilt that... Mothers would carry, and, and, and that has often been a problem, Jeff. I think with actually um, not only that, but so I'm sure that the uh, the alcohol lobby has had something to do with not not identifying fetal alcohol syndrome, because there has been a, a dearth of information about it publicly. Where's the this national the public time, health as you say, information? This is, yeah, this is the first time you've seen anything about it. Same here, and when I asked about it when I was working in the drug and alcohol field. There were people, there were doctors who were actually saying um, it's not really a syndrome. Wow. It's something, if it, if it does come out as a set of disorders, it's usually because what's happened is the uh, the woman, the pregnant woman, has come into the, into the delivery suite carrying a cask of goon. Oh, right. So it was, you know, there was a lot of misinformation yeah. out there and I wonder if that came from... Who was funding the doctors and yeah. who, you know, Lobbying how much taxation was, yeah, yep. being taken from the alcohol lobby? Well, we know how hard it is to get um, education campaigns about safer drinking and, you know. And, well, look what's happening in Japan. Yeah, <laughs> so we've got a story yeah. about that coming up. Yeah. We might actually talk about that. So we it's will. a really interesting one. Will we so go, to a, go to a song? I think that's a great idea. Uh, this is Eric Burden and Spill the Wine. Star of the movie 
this really blew my mind The fact that me An overfed, long-haired, leaping gnome Should be the star of a Hollywood movie Hmm There I was Hmm I was taken to a place The Hall of the Mountain King Eric Burden and Spill the Wine. Mm. Okay, it's 20 past 11. You're listening to News from the Drug War Front, brought to you by Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy. And uh, we're on 2XXFM 98.3 People Powered Radio. Before we go on, I just want to do a quick shout out to Jude Burns' niece, Georgia. It's her birthday today, so happy birthday, Georgia. Happy birthday, Georgia. Yeah, Yeah. hope you have as good a birthday as you you can in this bleak weather. um, Indeed. Have a good one. Okay, we mentioned the uh, Japan wanting young people to drink more alcohol. This is sort of staggering. But uh, the the government's been hit in the pocket by an unusual problem. It's young people aren't drinking enough. Since COVID began, bars and other premises selling alcohol have been hit hard by restrictions, causing sales and liquor tax revenues to plummet in the world's third largest largest economy. So what's the government's solution? Well, launch a contest to find new ways to encourage young people to drink more. (laughs) The Sake Viva campaign, overseen by the National Tax Agency, invites participants to submit ideas on how to, quote, stimulate demand amongst young people for alcohol 
through new services, promotional methods, products, designs, and even sales techniques using artificial intelligence or the metaverse, according to the official competition website. And as a quote, the domestic alcohol beverage market is shrinking due to demographic changes such as declining birth rate and ageing population and lifestyle changes due to the impact of COVID. And the competition aimed to appeal to the younger generation and revitalise the industry. The contest includes promotional ideas for all types of Japanese alcohol. Finalists will be invited to an expert consultation in October before a final tournament in November in Tokyo. The winner will receive support for their plan to be commercialised. This is insane, yeah. Mary. Yeah. Not everyone is on board with the competition and tax agency receiving um, criticism from some people online. Are you kidding me? One Twitter user wrote, staying away from alcohol is a good thing. No, he Others pointed out that it seems very inappropriate for a government agency to encourage young people to drink and it appeared the campaign had not considered any health risks or sensitivity towards people dealing with alcoholism. Indeed. Japan's health ministry has called in the past warned of the dangers of excessive drinking. In a post on its website last year, it called excessive alcohol consumption a, quote, major social problem that persisted despite a recent slowdown in consumption. And it urged people with unhealthy drinking habits to, quote, reconsider their relationship with alcohol. A ministry spokesperson declined to comment on the tax agency's competition when contacted by CNN. Declining sales, Japan, along with several other countries in Asia, maintained tough restrictions throughout much of the pandemic, closing public spaces and reducing reducing business hours in restaurants. Um, Ezekiah's Japan version of a pub or tavern were particularly hard hit with the latest available figures showing sales halved from 2019 to 2020, according to the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry. With fewer opportunities to drink in public, the rate of household consumption drinking at home increased significantly, the ministry said. That seems strange. Sounds like they're contradicting themselves, Geoffrey. Mm. Yeah. Encourage people to drink more but out in bars? Gives the police more to do, maybe. But young adults have stood out as an exception. About 30% of people in their 40s to 60s drink regularly, meaning three days or more per week, the ministry said, compared to just 7.8% of people in their 20s. Quote, in this way, the decline in drinking habits year by year is thought to be having an effect on the shrinking of the domestic market, the ministry said. In a 2021 report, the tax agency said the duties on liquor had been a major revenue source for the government for centuries. What a surprise. That had declined in recent decades. Japan received 1.1 trillion yen, that's with a TR, or 8.1 billion with a B in alcohol tax in 2021. 1.7% of overall tax revenue compared to 3% in 2011 and 5% in 1980. Japan lifted its state of emergency in October 2021, allowing restaurants to sell alcohol again and stay open later. But restrictions in some parts of the country remain in place until March this year. The country's recovery since then has been slower than expected, hindered by rising inflation, the economic impact of the war in Ukraine and recent surges in COVID cases that have led to prolonged restrictions. 
Now, that's not a major surprise, but it is a slap in the face, isn't it, Jeffrey? You know? Absolutely. Fancy, we don't want you to be intoxicated unless it's with something that you're taxing. Yeah. We're taxing, but we're not going to tax marijuana and we're not going to tax any of the drugs that you enjoy, but we, because we can tax alcohol, in particular sake, yep. which is a traditional Japanese rice, drink. Rice, made from rice, isn't it? Yes, yeah. and it's made in Japan, yes. Yep. Um, because we can tax that and we're losing out on the taxation revenue from it, we're going to encourage you to get drunk. And what happens with people who get drunk? What happens to families? Well, there's a lot of of harm. Incredible amount of harm that goes on. All right, we've got a positive story. uh, Staying with international news. Um, This country has called time on the war on drugs by Stefano Pozzabon from msn.com, August the 22nd. This We've mentioned it, but um, this is extraordinary change of um, attitude towards drug policy. Oh, complete, you know, 180 turn, yeah? It's really positive. It's the home of the notorious drug trafficker Pablo Escobar and the origin of legendary Santa Marta Gold, once the most sought-after variety of weed in the United States, named after Colombia's Sierra Nevada to Santa Marta mountain range. For many, Colombia is synonymous with drug cartels and narco-traffickers. It is one of the largest narcotics producers in the world. Last year, the US government estimated it was producing over 1 million kilograms of cocaine, the highest in the world and more than the two closest nations, Peru and Bolivia, combined. So when the South American country's new president says he intends to regulate the use of legal substances, or at least some of them, the world listens. Quote, it's time to accept the war on drugs has been a complete failure. Hey. Yeah, said newly elected <laughs> Colombian president Gustavo Petro. And he's, I think as we reported, he said that during his inauguration. Colombia's law already allows the production of cannabis for medical purposes mostly to be exported to foreign markets like the US and Canada. But supporters of new legislation believe that only legalising recreational cannabis can push thousands of farmers away from tra- drug trafficking and into illegal trade. To this day, the Colombian state faces challenges over control of its territory by a variety of criminal actors, from former left-wing guerrillas and paramilitaries to narco-cartels and organised crime syndicates. Drug trafficking remains a powerful source of revenue for these outlaws, and over the past 50 years, public authorities have just pushed a prohibitionist agenda, banning the trade and consumption of drugs in order to try and hit the criminals in their pockets. But the stream of illegal drugs has never ceased. Quote, we will never, ever achieve peace in Colombia until we regulate drug trafficking, said Senator Gustavo Bolivar, one of the signatories of the new bill and a close ally of the new president. Quote, not even in the United States with all their might and money could win the war on drugs. Right now, Colombia produces more drugs than when Pablo Escobar was alive. There are more consumers and more farmers. The drug trade is growing despite the money we invest in fighting it and the thousands of deaths that we suffer, suffer, said Bolivar, who recently travelled to the state of Colorado for a first-hand look at the economic benefits of legalising cannabis. Mm. In an interview, Bolivar told CNN it was hypocritical of the United States to legalise marijuana at home and supporting drug wars abroad, such as in Colombia, where Washington sends millions of dollars every year to arm and train Colombian forces in their struggle against the cartels. A landmark report from the Truth Commission, an interdisciplinary panel, 
tasked to investigate over 50 years of civil conflict in Colombia, found that drug trafficking helped prolong the conflict despite almost $8 billion in military aid from the US to Colombia. At least 260,000 Colombians, the vast majority civilians, were killed in the violence. Colombia's President Gustavo Petro delivers a speech after his inauguration ceremony at Bolivar Square in Bogota on August 7, 2027. Juan Barreto, AFP, Getty Images. Okay, so that was a picture that we didn't see. The campaign to legalise weed in Colombia unites left-wing senators like Bolivar with civil society organisations and deep-pocketed foreign investors and has received a boost over the last 12 months from the country's changing politics. With Petro ascending to the presidency and progressive parties now a majority in Colombian Congress. It's a massive change in it is a huge Colombian change. politics. It's been right-wing for from very right wing, and it seems to be happening in um, Brazil too. I might add. Well, Lula might be making a comeback. Indeed, indeed. Be nice to see Bolsonaro go. It certainly would get rid of all these populist ones. A new generation of Com- Colombian leaders is the next uh, heading. Quote: We saw the legalisation of adult use, adult use, recreational use, two or three years ago, uh, two, three or four years ago down the line. But now we're hoping for this year, said Louis Merchan, a Colombian businessman who is the CEO of Flora Growth, a Toronto-based company that's investing in Colombian marijuana from medical cannabis to textile hemp. The campaigners who have demanded this shift for years agree. Quote, we think now is the time, the time is ripe to do it, says Louis Louis Felipe Ruiz, an investor at Colombia's NGO De Justicia, which supports decriminalising drugs and has documented the war on drugs for years. Drug trafficking is the top cause of detention in Colombia and, according to the Colombian Justice Ministry, 13% of the country's detainees are serving a sentence related to the drug trade. Ruiz argues that one of the benefits of legalising marijuana would also be decreasing the prison population. Quote, there are large parts of the political world that's ready to have a debate on legalising marijuana and, frankly, taking away the stigma against cannabis is already a great victory for us, Ruiz told CNN. Those who oppose legalisation hail from the conservative right and believe the shift would just make drug use easier. Former President Alvaro Uribe, a political mentor of Petro's predecessor, Ivan Duke, Ivan Duke, sorry, the main uh, exponent of conservatism in the country, tweeted in 2020 that, quote, recreational marijuana leads to other drugs, oh, boom, boom, alters the neurons, the consumer reaches a state of alienation, loses control over his decisions, which is the loss of his freedom. All his, I might note, totally sexist, yeah. <laughs> let alone incorrect. Celebrating when a previous project to legalise weed was blocked in Congress. Yeah, now the next heading is illegal agriculture. Historically, marijuana in Colombia is grown by small-scale farmers who cannot afford the pharmaceutical licences required to produce medical cannabis. So they sell their product to drug cartels. 
The bill presented to Congress could allow these small-scale farmers, most of them based in chronically underdeveloped rural regions, to finally enter the legal market. COCCAM, that's C-O-C-C-A-M, a confederation of coca, marijuana and poppy growers that works as a lobbying group for illicit farmers, estimates that up to 3,000 families depend on illegal marijuana as their main source of income. In most cases, these farmers live in isolated rural areas that are hours away from the closest paved road. Compared to legal agricultural products like fruit and vegetables, marijuana and coca leaves don't spoil for days and they sell at a higher price per kilogram. They also have the advantage of growing all year round, while most plants give a harvest only a few months a year. Because of Colombia's historic role, legalising recreational use would be an immense cultural shift and perhaps a source of pride. Uh, Marchand said, quote, it would, it would be not only a source of pride for someone like me for what was frowned upon. I've been in business for a number of decades and when someone learns that I'm from Colombia, you always get the, uh, uh, that <laughs> weird look, he said, I can imagine. Oh, bad. Yeah, okay. Legal cocaine is the next heading. Bolivar, the senator, believes that Colombian regulatory system will eventually follow the same path by legalising not only marijuana but even cocaine, the most lucrative source of income for the cartels. Drafting numbers on an illegal market is never an exact science, but the 2016 study from the Colombian government estimated that drug trafficking, or the flow of illegal drugs, mostly cocaine, that's produced in Colombia and sold in international markets from Europe to North America to Asia, was worth up to 3.8% of the Colombian gross national product, or $7.5 million at the time. In comparison, illegal drug consumption intended as the drugs that are consumed illegally in Colombia and where marijuana plays a larger role was worth 0.75% of the Colombian GDP or $2.8 million. Marijuana is a small, quote, marijuana is a small change in the drug business. Is small change in the drug business, I'm sorry. The big money that the cartels are making and the lion's share of the problem is called cocaine. And people in Colombia and Mexico will continue to die as long as we look at the problem with hypocrisy, Bolivar told CNN. He envisions a network of state-regulated dispensaries where cocaine could be sold under medical prescription and regional agreements across other drug-producing countries. The three largest producers of cocaine in the world, Bolivia, Colombia and Peru, are all currently ruled by ideologically aligned left-wing leaders. Bolivia has a thriving legal market of coca byproducts, mostly dry leaves that are chewed by the indigenous population, and already in 2012 the governments of Bolivia and Colombia pushed for a regional thinking, a rethinking, of drug policies and multi in multilateral meetings. What a sensible solution. Indeed. And I would say that probably local multilateral meetings would be more likely to be heard and listened to and agreed with, whereas a United Nations or United States yeah. funded are less orders. likely to yeah. listen sympathetically to those arguments. Absolutely. Um Anyway, he quotes, we could, for example, make a small treaty in our countries to modify the 1961 Convention on Narcotic Drugs and plant the first flag of legalisation in the world. Yay, other countries may fo follow. They may indeed, the senator said. 
that before international treaties are rewritten, rewritten, Colombia might still have a legal battle ahead of it. As it stands, the Colombian constitution explicitly forbids using narcotic drugs without medical prescription. So even if Congress passed a law using narcotic drugs without medical prescription, so um, legalising recreational or passed a law legalising recreational marijuana, it could be deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. An appeal to eliminate that article has already started by another lawmaker, Congressman, Congressman Juan Carlos Lasada. But it's definitely a very positive um, it's change. It's a great article. No, it's a, yeah. it's a, look, they talk sensibly, Jeffrey. Mm. They make they make so much sense to me and to you and probably to our listeners too, because we know why um, we don't can't guarantee the quality of the drugs we get. We can't do Black anything market. about the fentanyl coming in and whether it gets into our heroin or any other illicit drug supply and how dangerous that is. But I'm very proud of those presidents and, and particularly Colombia coming out and saying, okay, it's we're going to get it together. It's going to change, yeah, yeah. rethink it. Well, that part of the world has really suffered, as you said. I'm sure the, has. The, you know, power imposed on them by the US especially. And, and I don't understand how they are going to save the whole of the Amazon River mm-hmm. or running all throughout South America if they cannot maintain the growers of, uh, of cannabis and coca leaves uh, because they in Brazil in particular they're encouraging people to come in and cut down old trees. Or burn it down. And and, and that place, I mean, the Amazon River is being um, funded by countries like the European Union are funding it to maintain. It is the lungs, lungs of, of the, the earth, earth, yeah? yeah? Yep. So well we said. need it. We need, the, we need the trees. We also need sensible thinkers like the Colombian president is or seems to be. Well, the negative impact of uh, prohibition on environmental um situation globally is often overlooked you know absolutely um, more often than not but yeah a very positive story okay i thought i might play uh, an old one this is uh, jane jett and i love rock and roll oh, i haven't heard good. this in a long while Playing my favorite 
Okay. Haven't heard that for a while, Joan Jett. Indeed. Classic, oh, I love rock and roll. Okay, it's, um, what is it, 17 minutes to midday and you're listening to News from the Drug War Front uh, with Jeff and Marion in Studio One at 2XX, People Powered Radio, 98.3 FM. Okay, um, I don't know if people are aware that there's currently, um, we're up to part two of a four-part series called uh, Richard Roxburgh Explores the Science of Drugs. Uh, last week was, I think, alcohol and tobacco. That was um, the first episode, yes, and tonight was the second one. At 9.30 uh, on yeah. ABC. Um, um, I think it might be well worth looking at it, even if it just gives us something to think about, Jeff. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure. Uh, because I didn't watch last week, because it was alcohol and tobacco, and I thought, oh, well, I don't use alcohol, I don't like tobacco. <laughs> I mean, I love tobacco. I saw sorry. a bit of it. It's but I, I, I actually think that the, the concept is good, um, and I would like to... Have a look at it anyway tonight and say what it's like and maybe we can talk about it next week. But I'd love to encourage our listeners to have a look at it and see what it tells them, uh, if it tells them anything positive or useful well, that they it, can use as an argument. It yeah? will be interesting what position is taken with the illicit Particularly drugs. Particularly with the opioids, yeah. yeah? I mean, there was a review um, from tbblackbox.com by Kevin Perry who said... Um, the, the four-part series is Drug Science Without the Politics. Uh, it's a fun, irreverent, and in-depth investigation of our most popular licit and illicit substances, including fascinating interviews with the finest international uh, academics. Uh, as we said, the first episode last week, Legal and Lethal, looked at nicotine and alcohol, two of the most lethal and widely consumed legal drugs. Each year, collectively, they claim about 10 million lives. Mm. Wow. Yeah, the modern cigarette has a fascinating history, which is essential to understanding how our nicotine habit has changed into such a hazardous addiction, according to science historian Professor Robert Proctor. Smoking wasn't always as dangerous. I think we said that last week, actually, Geoffrey, that it's been going on for 2,000 years, just not in the form that it is in today. Professor David Nutt, a government drug advisor in the UK, was infamously fired for saying that alcohol was more deadly than ecstasy and LSD. We learned why he believes alcohol to be the most dangerous drug in society today in this episode. So the Science of Drugs with Richard Roxburgh, Series 1, Episode 1 of 4, premieres, that was last, last Tuesday. Week, yeah. Tonight is episode two at 9.30pm on the ABC and I really would suggest that you have a look at it because I think it's great to uh, get some facts and also a bit of humour into the whole issue of drugs and to, you know, we know how much damage that tobacco and alcohol does and I have a tobacco addiction but I don't have an alcohol addiction. Mm. I don't think I... I may have had a... Uh, uh, a spin out and certainly, you know, when I was young teenager using alcohol was something that we did regularly oh, on a, a regular passage, basis. Wasn't it? And yeah. that was uh, uh, in fact the main reason for having sex was to get <laughs> drunk and forget about it. <laughs> not be responsible, not make a decision about doing it. And still I think it's responsible for a lot of um violence, uh, pregnancy, uh, unwanted pregnancy in particular and domestic family violence, uh, and it's just shocking. But have a look tonight. Look, anything that encourages... Um, rational thinking about rational drugs. thinking and discussion and uh, an examination of the failure of prohibition, especially. And pulls out the emotions 
from it, you know, it, because that's really what it is. It's the emotional impact that yeah. people, that, well, the emotional uh, response to drugs, the illicit drugs that people have that keeps them where they are in our society, if you like, keeps and them illegal. The imposition of morality yeah. on other people it, as well. Well, the 60 years of propaganda, yeah. Jeffrey. Yeah, yeah. It, takes, it takes a lot of getting over with. It does. Um, look, I just might mention quickly that there is a harm reduction forum um, coming up. I think it's this uh, Friday, but um, it's organised by um, Harm Reduction Australia. And uh, there's a note that's been sent out by the president, Gino Bumbaka, uh, and he said, Essentially, the online format is designed to provide an affordable and yeah, accessible way. 25th of August it is, Geoffrey. Yeah. 25th, so that would be Friday, wouldn't it? Yeah, yes, I assume so. If today is the 23rd, it'll be oh. Thursday. But it's a three-hour online program, including an opening keynote address, state-of-the-art plenary speakers and a facilitated discussion panel on topics in harm reduction and drug policy reform, including needle and syringe program, roadside drug testing and driving, which we go on about all the time. Just It's not good, good law. It's not um, scientifically judging impairment to drive. No, it it's just, just tests whether there's a, present, a presence of uh, drugs in the system. Uh, opioid agonist treatment, hepatitis C, festivals harm reduction, pill testing slash drug checking, decriminalisation law reform, policing and law enforcement, uh, prisons, human rights and pandemic preparedness and responses and also drug policy and research. So if you're interested, um, just go to uh, www.harmreductionaustralia, all one word, .org.au and I'm pretty sure you can still register for the three-hour online um, forum. Mm, yes, again. And, yeah, and again, you know, uh, good on you, Gino, for um, getting onto this stuff and getting people out and discussing it. It's a really good, good, um, good set of uh, principles to be discussing and to be bringing online and getting people out of the woodwork, getting them involved. Absolutely, and they've had a. a important role in the developing of the drug checking service that's opened a month ago. Jono's always had an important role in just about everything that's that's good. (laughs) And unfortunately, he's had a role in some of the things that have been bad, but he hasn't wanted to. He's done it uh, unwillingly. He's been around a long while, hasn't he? He's been around for a long while, and I really respect him. Might just mention again the hours that the um, can test... Service, yes, which is um, is drug checking, not pill testing. Not pill testing, drug checking. Yep, we we want to keep stressing that because it's available for um, anyone to have their drugs. As long as you remember them, Jeffrey. Do you remember them? (laughs) (laughs) You don't, do you? I Um, think it was uh, Thursday, ten a.m. till one, and Friday, six till nine p.m. of the current hours. Um, And they're at the health centre at uh, One More More Street. Street. And you have a peer worker that will help you show show you through the process. Yep. I think it takes around 20 minutes. Um, but um, as uh, I mentioned, um, the information Mitch gave me about the uh, sophisticated nature of the two machines they have um, on site yeah. is you're going to yeah. find out. Um, no, I, look, I just think it's well worth going to. I think it's well having a look at it and um, finding out what they do and what what you're taking, you know, what you're buying on the dark web. Um, we know that there have been some problems with uh, on dark web Xanax or benzodiazepines. Yep. So we need to have a look seriously about what other drugs contain as well. So we can only suggest that you make use of the service um, it's not um, publicly 
doesn't expose you publicly to no. to people's um, uh, opinions on drugs. It just exposes you to what's in the drugs that you know you are planning on taking, and gives you the option of throwing them away or taking them, depending upon how safe or unsafe they are. I see it as an essential consumer right. Think, well, abso- you know. Absolutely. You know, straight back to human rights, Geoffrey. In fact, just what we should be having you know, we've we should got have had all the time. Choice magazine, which, you know, compares washing machines or vacuum cleaners right. or whatever. But when it comes to illicit drugs, it's um, Russian roulette. As, That's right. Uh, and well, as the police say. Said, yeah. It's, there's, there's, there's no guarantee of... Uh, safety, you know, it could be cut with um, something inert and safe, or you know, not toxic, be, uh, <laughs> but more likely something toxic and uh, and dangerous. Well, the impression I'm getting is that there's a lot of these novel psychoactives that have been produced that m- mimic those mimic the effects of the drugs, of the that, drugs are that they want, yeah. right? but they just been tweaked a little bit so they don't actually comply with the leg or or. Um, Compare, compare or contrast with the legislation, but they've been tweaked so that they are just not quite the drugs that are against the law. And also cheaper to make than having to Indeed. go through the whole process. And of to uh, make available. Yeah. yeah. You don't have to advertise. People, people are keen to try illicit drugs. Well, it's part of the human condition to change your consciousness, whether it's experimentation, you know, fun, pleasure. um. Indeed. Look, the bottom line is it's been going on. It has been happening for thousands of years. The change in consciousness or the, the wish to be feeling differently or more of the way that you already feel, which is actually what happens with drugs more mm. like often than not. It's not that you feel completely different. It's that you feel better uh, or more intensely the way than you did before. Yes, it actually, most of the drugs that we use are more inclined to exaggerate. They're better to have, uh, to make a good time better than to make a bad time good. Because it doesn't work that way. <laughs> Most and drugs don't make a bad time good. Everyone's got their preference. Everyone's different. Um, and to me, the, the beauty of the drug checking side is it gives people a chance to find out what is in it would definitely. what they're ingesting yeah. or injecting or swallowing. And whether they should or not. Yeah. Well, and give them the choice, the, the opportunity to make that choice. But right now we don't have that choice. Well, the evidence from the trials was that um, told that there was toxic, you know, uh, additives. People mostly chose to toss it away. That's they didn't, right. Didn't as want soon as they saw it was that it wasn't wasn't what they thought it was, they tossed it. Exactly. So, yeah, um, yeah can't uh, encourage people enough to um, use that service. Um, I'm not- very proud of Canberra for getting it up and running too. Hey, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, look, we might just I might just re-mention. Um, the uh, naloxone training. Oh, yes. Again, because I did say it right at the very beginning, but it's September the 6th at the Early Morning Centre. Uh, to book a place or get more information, call Damo at Karma on 6253 3643. Um, that's still incentivised, Jeff, isn't it? It is. <laughs> it's yep. a, meaning you get paid for going to it. It's not very long, but it's a very worthwhile cause. And you, what you're doing is learning to save people's lives from an opioid overdose. 
the uh, naloxone that is used, naloxone does nothing but reverse overdose. Mm. It just reduces the impact of opioid overdose. Well, it kicks some opioids off the off receptors, receptors and for a period of time. Again. That's yeah. right, and you can get back to come back to life. And it's uh, very effective. Yeah. Absolutely. And the more that it's made available, the better. And the yeah. more people that have trained, um, more people that can have it in their pockets and have it available, just in, because because even if somebody falls off over just because if you use naloxone on them and they haven't had an opioid overdose it's not going to hurt them yeah that's the first thing you can do and you can make them come back to consciousness if they have an opioid overdose if it's something else it doesn't make any difference it's, it's not, not going to hurt benzos or alcohol no nope. but if it's opiate overdose it is going to do it's the definitely going to do the job and you have the power and the means to save somebody's that's life that's right and it's a you know makes you feel like a hero for doing it well, it's really powerful. Me. I've still got to get more. And as you said earlier, it's um, something that Karma is rightfully proud of. And, and so um, they should be. It's extended you know, across the country to the point where the federal government is even... We send a shout-out to Chris. Chris on holidays yet or not yet? Yes, he's on holidays. Happy so holidays, Chris. Have a good time. Yep. Recharge Relax. the batteries. Yep. Look after Paint yourself. the walls or something. Yep. <laughs> put some put some graffiti on the walls and then you can paint over the top of them. Yeah. Chill out and relax, my friend. Absolutely. Kick it, kick back, put your feet up and think nice thoughts. All right, that uh, brings us to an end of this week's show. Thank you, Marion. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you, listeners. Lovely to talk to you again, despite the weather. Well, and, you know, it's a good time to be sitting in listening to the radio, to the wireless, as I call it. Indeed. And a shout-out to John, the bus driver, too. I haven't said a shout-out to him for a long time. And we'll see you, talk to you next week. We'll see you next week. I'll see you next week. We will talk to the listeners next Indeed. week. We'll leave you with the theme song, Golden Brown by the Stranglers. Look after yourselves. Bye for now. Day.